The last thing we talked about last week was this, this encouragement that Paul gave the church in Corinth. He says, therefore, as you abound in everything, you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and all diligence, and in your love to us, see that you abound in this grace also. What's he encouraging them to abound in? We'll get to that here. I speak not by a commandment, but by the occasion of the forwardness of others and to prove the sincerity of your love. He says, I'm not telling you you've got to, but I think you should. What's he talking about? You know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might be rich. Might be rich. He's beginning what I call the lesson on giving. The lesson on giving. And we'll go back to the beginning of the chapter just to review it. Just to review it. Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit. We want to let you know the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, how that in a great trial of affliction, they're in trouble. The abundance of their joy, <laughs> their joy is overflowing. And the deep poverty, oh, they're in trouble, abounded unto the riches of their liberality. What? Those are contradictory ideas, and yet they're flowing out of the pen of the apostle. The Macedonians, they're in trials and afflictions. They've got so much joy. They're just, but they're so broke. But they're giving and giving and giving the riches of the liberality. For to their power I bear record, and beyond their power they were willing of themselves, praying us with much entreaty, take it, take it, that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering of the saints. They just wouldn't let us go without taking the gift that they'd gathered together. Not for us, not for Paul and his friends, but for the churches back in Jerusalem that were suffering a famine. This they did, not as we hope, but first, first they gave their own selves to the Lord. That wasn't, we were looking for the gift, but they were saying, no, you're going to have us. And then they gave unto us by the will of God, insomuch that we desired Titus, our friend Titus, that as he had begun, so he would also finish in you the same grace also. Titus is my messenger back to you. He came from you to tell me that you were doing well. And so when I send Titus back to you, he's going to be responsible for this giving of the gift for the dearth relief. Therefore, as you abound in everything, Corinthians, you're rich. You've got all sorts of spiritual gifts. You're, you're just overwhelmingly abounding. Faith and utterance and knowledge and diligent faithfulness and your love to us abound in this also. Like those Macedonians, get in on the giving. I'm not telling you you've got to. I'm just saying what an occasion, what an opportunity by the occasion of the forwardness of others to prove the sincerity of your love. And then he reminds them of the example of the Lord Jesus. We read this just a moment ago. Though he was poor... Yet for your sakes he be, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might be rich. One of the commentators that I look at, one of the old fellows from the 19th century, Clark, says this is the strongest argument of all as far as giving is concerned. He says, you know, the grace. What are we talking about in the grace? Well. In the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 1, 
and verses 6 through 8. This is Paul's introduction in his letter to the Ephesians, not the Corinthians, but the Ephesians, to the praise of the glory of his grace. And in his grace, he has made us accepted in the beloved. That's in Jesus. He's made us accepted in his It's his grace that's done that. In whom, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. And in his grace, he has abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. And in the next chapter, we're familiar with 8 and 9, but in chapter 2 and verse 7, he says, this is the reason why that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Jesus, Christ Jesus. We are the display, Jesus dying on the cross so that he could forgive our sins and give us his perfect righteousness to stand before God. God made that plan so he could show how great are the exceeding riches of his grace. How did he do it? In his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith. Back in 2 Corinthians 8 9, Paul said, Though he was rich, I would remind you in John chapter 16, John 16 and verse 15, Jesus, as he's discussing with the disciples, he's leaving. In verse 15, he says this, All things that the Father hath are mine. Doesn't that pretty well sum up how rich he was, he is? All things that the Father hath are mine. The Father's God in heaven, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the one true God. But Jesus says it plainly, everything that the Father has, those are my things. He's the Holy Spirit when he comes. He'll take of mine and show it unto you. He'll teach you about those things. Though he was rich, for your sakes he became poor. Do you remember 2 Corinthians chapter 5? The last verse of the chapter, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him for your sakes. He, the Father in heaven, sent his Son who knew no sin. He didn't have any of this sin stuff. We were covered with it. We were born in it. We were sinners by doing sin. We were sinners adjudged guilty of the sin of Adam. We're just sinners every which way, born with Adam's sinful nature. But he, the Father, made him the Son who knew no sin to be sin for us. Under the weight of that sin on the cross, he died and was buried and rose again. The sin is gone, that we might be made the very righteousness of God in him. For your sakes, he became poor. How poor did he become? Luke, Luke chapter 9, way down upon the verse 58. Luke has long chapters. 9, 58. Jesus said to a fellow that said, I'll go with you wherever you go, Jesus said. Foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests. The Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. 
I don't have a cot. I don't have a pup tent. I lay on the ground. No place to lay my head. Though he owned everything that the Father had in heaven, no place to lay his head. I'm reminded of Philippians chapter 2, where we are encouraged to let the mind of Christ be in us. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. He didn't think I got to hold on to this stuff. He made himself of no reputation. He went from heaven to a manger. And you say, well, that's what, everybody's got mangers in their yard this time. No, it was a place where animals were. It was a barn. It was a feeding trough that she laid him in. A place to feed the cows and sheep and camels and whatever. Not a pretty place. He made himself of no reputation, became a man, but not a son of Adam. Truly a man, but the second man, as God looks at him, took upon him the form of a servant. When he had gathered his disciples at the Last Supper table, and nobody else had volunteered to clean their feet as they came in out of the dust of the street, he wrapped a towel around his waist, took off his outer garment, wrapped a towel around his waist, picked up a basin of water, and went from one disciple to the next to wash their feet. He really and truly, literally made himself a servant, made him, took the place of a slave. He was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself further still, became obedient to the Father's will unto death. And he didn't just die, but as with an exclamation point, I think, in our minds, even the death of the cross, the lowest, the most humiliating, the most shameful death. I think if Christ had died in our century, people would have hung little electric chairs around their neck on chains and said they were being Christians. I, it's not a pretty thing, that cross. But we owe the payment for our sin and Jesus' love to us. We, we show it to be reminded of what he's done for us, but he's, it's an empty cross, you know that, right? It's an empty cross. He was taken down, buried, and three days later got up from the dead never to die again. The end of the verse there, 2 Corinthians 8 9, says, he became poor that you, through his poverty, might be rich, right, be rich. I go to Romans chapter 8, Eight, that's the one between nine and say eight. Chapter eight, verse thirty-two. I hope this doesn't make you dizzy. It makes me a little dizzy spinning the wheels here. What shall we say then, verse thirty-one, to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? The one who said, all that the Father has is mine. And the Father spared not his Son and delivered him up for us all. He's going to, with his Son, Jesus, also freely give us all things. He's not broke. He's not even a little short. Ephesians 3.8 talks about our riches. Ephesians 3, verse 8. Unto me, Paul said, who am less than the least of all saints, 
Is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ? What God has his very righteousness to cover up the sinner with who believes in Jesus. The unsearchable riches of Christ. All things are yours. All things are yours. James chapter 2. James writes to the church of a bunch of disobedient people there in Jerusalem. Hearken, my beloved brethren, has not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom, which he's promised to them that love him? He says, you people, you're treating rich people in church better than poor people in church, but Jesus and his Father have chosen the poor people of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom. You're behaving badly. They're going to inherit the earth. So we go on with the verses now in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, where Paul is, as I said, encouraging, we hope encouraging to you, but encouraging especially these Corinthians, encouraging the Christian in Corinthians to get on with what the Macedonians had figured out and give. And this is the lesson on giving. It starts in chapter 8 here. I herein I give my advice. This is expedient for you who have begun before, not only to do, but also to be forward a year ago. You planned a year ago, he says, to get involved in the giving for the dearth in Jerusalem. You were forward a year ago. You began before. Do it now. Now, therefore, verse 11, perform the doing of it. What you plan to do, your faith promise, if you will, what you... What you said, yeah, we can help with that. We've got a little bit of extra here. Or we can help with that even if we don't have a little bit of extra here. Perform the doing of it. As there was a readiness to will, so there may be a performance out of that which you have. The harvest is in in your house. Now get with the giving, the lesson on giving. Verse 12, if there be first a willing mind... It's accepted according to that a man hath and not according to the, that he hath not. God is not fooled when you said, boy, if I just won the lottery, I'd give God a bunch of that. He didn't need that. What he wants is you look at what you have and he says, I, I'm going to give what I have. It is accepted according to that a man hath, not according to that he hath not. He's not impressed with promises as he is with giving. I mean not that other men be eased and you burdened, but by an equality, that now at this time your abundance may be a supply for their want, that their abundance also may be a supply for your want, that there may be an equality. As it is written, he that has gathered much had nothing over, and he that had gathered little had no lack. Now you say, that, what's that from? He says, as it is written, that looks like it's from the Old Testament. Yeah, yeah, it is. In the notes I reviewed just for a moment here that we just read, the Corinthians had gotten started in this matter of giving some time before. Paul urges them to complete the doing of what they began to do, what they had declared themselves willing to do in the past. And the next little paragraph, prosperity from the Lord in life circumstances varies over time. Paul did not think the churches should ever know a uniform Increase in prosperity. That's not Bible. That's some preachers today, but it's not Bible. He encourages the churches to care for one another. 
not just the local needs and the local needy, but for other churches across the world. Care for one another. That's what this is about. Corinth is nowhere near Jerusalem. Macedonia is nowhere near either of them, but both Corinth and Macedonia are getting in on the giving for the church in the city of Jerusalem, which really needed food, thought they needed. But this, as it is written, it's in Exodus chapter 16. Go look all the way back to the book of Exodus. It's easy to find. You turn your Bible upside down and go 65 books and you'll come to Exodus. That's not probably the easiest way. Exodus chapter 16. <coughs> They've left Egypt. They've crossed the Red Sea. The previous chapter is the glorious crossing of the Red Sea and escaping Pharaoh. And verse 1 says they took their journey from Elim and all the congregation of the children of Israel came into the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after their departing out of the land of Egypt. So they left in the first month, and this is the middle of the second month. And the whole congregation of the children of Israel were just so happy that they had the leadership of Moses and Aaron. Oh, it doesn't say that. They murmured against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. What are they murmuring about? They're free of slavery. They're free of Pharaoh. The children of Israel, verse 3, said unto them, Would to God we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. When we sat by the flesh pots, we had stew. <laughs> when we did eat bread to the full, you have brought us forth into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then said the Lord unto Moses, I'll rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain rate every day, that I may prove them whether they will walk in my law or no. This is before the giving of the law. It shall come to pass on the sixth day they shall prepare that which they bring in, and it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So they're already aware of the Sabbath, though this is before the beginning of the law. And Moses and Aaron said unto all the children of Israel, At evening, then you shall know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. In the morning you shall see the glory of, your, of the Lord, for he hears your murmurings against the Lord. And what are we that you murmur against us? Moses said, This shall be when the Lord shall give you in the evening flesh to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, for that the Lord hears your murmurings which you murmur against him. And what are we? Your murmurings are not against us, but against the Lord. And Moses spake unto Aaron, Say unto the congregation of the children of Israel, Come near before the Lord. He's heard your murmurings. Murmurings. Uh. And it came to pass, as Aaron spoke unto the whole congregation of the children of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. Oh, they'd seen him before, but now he's threatening. Looks like bad weather. The Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, I have heard the murmurings of the children of Israel. Speak unto them, saying, At even you shall eat flesh, and in the morning you shall be filled with blood, and you shall know that I, the Lord, am your God. And it came to pass, this is not the manna, that at even the quails came up and covered the camp, and in the morning the dew lay round about the host. There is the manna. When the dew that lay was gone up, behold, the face of the wilderness, there lay a small round thing, as small as the hoarfrost on the ground. And when the children of Israel saw it, they said one to another, it is manna, which is a Hebrew word that means, what is it? <laughs> what is it? 
They wist not what it was. Moses said unto them, This is the bread which the Lord gives you to eat, has given you to eat. This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Gather of it every man according to his eating. And Omer, that's a measure, for every man according to the number of your persons. Take ye every man for them which are in his tents. Get enough for your wife and your kids and your servants. And the children of Israel did so and gathered some more and some less. And when they did meet it, measure it with an omer, he that gathered much had nothing over, and he that gathered little had no lack. They gathered every man according to his eating. That's what the reference was in Second Corinthians there. Moses said, let no man leave it until the morning. But some people got a bunch and said they didn't hearken unto Moses. They said, I want to make sure we have something to eat tomorrow. They left some of it till morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was wroth with them. He, God wanted them to trust him to bring it new every morning. They gathered it every morning, every man according to his eating. When the sun waxed hot, it melted. It came to pass that on the sixth day, to not have to work on the Sabbath, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each man, and all the rulers of the congregation told Moses, and he said, that's what the Lord said. Tomorrow is the rest of the holy Sabbath unto the Lord. Bake that which you shall bake today, and seethe that which you will seethe, boil it and roast it and whatever, that which remaineth over, lay up for you to be kept until the morning. And they laid it up until the morning as Moses bade, and it did not stink, neither was there any worm therein. Moses said, Eat that today. Today is the Sabbath unto the Lord. Today you shall not find it in the field. Six days you gather it, the seventh day is the Sabbath, in it there shall be none. It came to pass there went out some of the people on the seventh day to gather, because people are stupid, <laughs> and they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long refuse ye to keep my commandments and my laws? See that for that the Lord has given you the Sabbath, Therefore he gives you on the sixth day the bread for two days. Abide ye every man in this place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. And the house of Israel called the name thereof. What is it? It was like coriander seed, white. And the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Why, it's honey grams, honey graham crackers. All right, this is the thing which the Lord commandeth. Take one omer of it and keep it not just overnight, but keep it for generations so that the future generations can see the bread wherewith I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out forth out of the land of Egypt. Take a pot and put an omer full of manna therein and lay it up before the Lord to be kept for your generations. So at the beginning, when they built the Ark of the Covenant, they put in it just the tables of the law and this pot of manna, and that was in it. And then later, when Aaron's rod budded, they kept it in there too. Those were the only three things in the Ark of the Covenant. And later on, when it's moved into the temple, they said the only thing that was in it were the tables of the law. Maybe when the Philistines had the Ark of the Covenant, they swiped Aaron's rod and the Omer of manna. We can just say, God bless you, I hope it's stank and bread worms, but on we go. I, I also in the notes put the reference in Numbers 11 about the quail, because the quail thing is a Kind of a gross situation. We go back now to go back to Second Corinthians chapter five, chapter eight. I'm sorry, Second Corinthians chapter eight. Go back there. Doesn't want to go back. That's 
that's pretty mysterious. Second Corinthians chapter 8, verse 15, was that reference to the manna. He that has gathered much hath nothing over, and he that had gathered little had no lack. As God cared for the children of Israel in the wilderness, when they had nothing, they had grown, and no food except the animals they brought with them. God cared for them morning by morning by morning, and weekly double on this day before the Sabbath, until they entered the promised land. And it says, the day that they entered the promised land and ate of the old fruit of the land, the manna stopped. It stayed as long as it needed to come, and then it stopped. We go on now to verse 16, a commendation of Titus. Titus is Paul's helper and friend and messenger back and forth between Paul and the Corinthians. Thanks be to God, which put the same earnest care into, our, into the heart of Titus for you. Indeed, he accepted the exhortation, but me more forward on his account, he went unto you. Titus went to you, and we have sent with him, there's another fellow with Titus, the brother whose praise is in the gospel throughout all the churches. He doesn't name him, and you can guess if you want to, but it just isn't named. But this would be somebody who's known as a presenter of the gospel. It could have been Yankee Arnold that went with him. I mean, he's, he's older, I don't know if he was that old. But uh, the brother whose praise is in the gospel throughout the churches. Not that only, but also was chosen of the churches to travel with us with this grace. We're collecting up this gift of money and food for the church in Jerusalem, which is administered by us to the glory of the same Lord and declaration of your ready mind. Avoiding this, that no man should blame us in this abundance which is administered by us Providing things honest, providing for honest things, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of all men. We've sent with them, that's Titus and the other unnamed brother whose fame is in the gospel, we have sent with them our brother, another, a third, whom we have oftentimes proved diligent in many things, but now much more diligent upon the great confidence which I have in you. So there's three, Titus and two unnamed men, going back to Corinth to get their gift, to go along with the Macedonian gift to be given back to the churches in Jerusalem. Verse 23, whether any do inquire of Titus, he's my partner and fellow helper concerning you. Or our brethren be inquired of, they're the messengers of the churches and the glory of Christ. Wherefore show ye to them and before the churches the proof of your love and of our boasting on your behalf. The notes go through what some of the people guessed these two men might have been that went with Titus, but it's just not worth taking up the time. You can read it. <clears throat> We're going to skip on down to verses 1 through 15 of the next chapter. This is still the lesson on giving, and Paul still gives his encouraging words about giving. He says, as touching the ministering to the saints, that's giving for the churches and other places, it's superfluous for me to write to you. I don't need to write this to you because I know the forwardness of your mind for which I boast of you to them of Macedonia. Achaia, that's where Corinth is, Greece, was ready a year ago. He says, what you planned to do a year ago, now do it. Your zeal has provoked very many. Yet have I sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this behalf, for they said that you may be ready, lest haply if they of Macedonia come with me and find you 
unprepared, we, that we say not ye, should be ashamed in this same confident boasting. Occasionally, Paul says, I'm not going to say something, and then he says it, which is a little funny to me. But uh, when he wrote to um, Philemon about the slave that had done him wrong, he says, I'm not going to mention to you how you owe me your very self. <laughs> I'm just not going to mention that. Yeah, okay. Verse 5, therefore I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren, I needed to encourage the brethren, that they would go before unto you and make up beforehand your bounty. Give you a warning, get it together before we get there. Whereof you had noticed before that the same might be ready as a matter of bounty and not of covetousness. Don't want you to get caught off guard and, and be feeling tight when we come to collect what you've gotten together to give. And then he goes into what are very very familiar and I hope very favorite verses about giving. About giving. He says, This I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Doesn't that remind you of a verse in the book of Galatians? Be not deceived, God is not mocked, Whatsoever a man soweth, that she, shall he also reap. In chapter 6 of Galatians and verse 7. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. And in my notes I have a little list, six points, about sowing and reaping. This is the law of sowing and reaping, and you probably can develop it further. The plain thing is what the verse says, what you sow, you reap. You reap what you sow. If you reap good things, you, if you sow good things, you reap good things. If you sow to the flesh, you reap fleshly things, and it's a bad thing. Another point, you reap later than you sow. I suppose some of you had my experience. When I was a little boy, four or five years old, Mama had a garden, and I wanted to have a garden too, so she gave me some bean seeds. And I went out and planted these beans in the ground in rows and watered them, took care of them a little bit. But I went out the next day to see my bean plants, and they weren't there yet. And I went out later and to see my bean plants, they still weren't there. It takes a little while to reap. You reap later than when you sow. Of course, after my, green plant, my bean plants grew up, what I had was beans, and then I remembered I don't like beans when I was a five-year-old boy. So I was a little sad about why I planted beans. I should have planted chocolate and peppermint or something. The third point, you reap more than you sow. Usually if you plant one seed, you get nothing. If you plant two seeds, you might get something. But when something grows up, if you plant a kernel of corn and it produces a plant, the plant the corn grows on has a, a, a fruit on it with many, many, many seeds, many, many, many grains of corn or barley or wheat. You reap much more than you sow. The fourth point is you reap the same kind that you sow. If you plant good seed, you should reap that same kind. You can't plant corn and expect watermelon. I wouldn't think that would be appropriate. And you should be very glad that if you plant oak trees, acorns grow on them rather than pumpkins because 
you get hit in the head with an acorn and it just hurts you a little bit, but you get hit in the head with a pumpkin and it's, it's going to change your day. Another point that you don't always think about, you reap where you sow. You plant here, you don't go over there and, and get, the, get the harvest. If you sow where you are, that's where you'll reap. If you go around the world to sow, then you'll reap around the world. You reap where you sow. And the last point, it is futile, it, it won't work to sow badly, sow bad seed, and pray for crop, crop failure. Somebody talks about sowing their wild oats when they're young. It's not a good idea. What do you do? What do you get when you sow wild oats? Wild oats. It's not a good harvest. It's not a good harvest. All right, we're going to go back to 2 Corinthians, I think. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 7. Every man, let me ask you a question. According to verse 7, how many people should be involved in this? Every man. That's fairly straightforward, isn't it? Every man except while they're in Bible college, every man except while they're still young, every man except after they get too old and retire. No, every man. I think it's every person. According as he, according as he purposes in his heart. All should participate. And according as he purposes. It's not according to the dictates of the pastor of the church, the evangelist, the missionary expressing them. It's as... He purposes in his heart. Individual determination. There's no dictated percentage. This is not the Jewish law where there was 10% and then there was another 10% and then there was another percentage. This is not that. Every man according as he purposeth in his heart. In his heart is not, I'm going to wear a placard that says I give my 15% or whatever. In your heart. You do it privately. Private determination, not public promises. Not grudgingly. If you're not free to do it, don't do it. Not grudgingly. But you should just get your heart right and give freely. Not of necessity. No external requirement, no coercion put upon the giver. When a person signs up to be involved in your ministry, do you demand that they sign a page that says they will give to the ministry? That's, that's probably a, a counter to this idea of necessity that not of necessity, not grudgingly. God loveth, God rewards, God blesses, God loves a cheerful giver, a cheerful giver, a giver that does it according to these guidances. And then if you give, oh, God is able. God is able to make all grace abound toward you that you always having all sufficiency in all things may abound to every good work. This is one of the verses that has so many superlatives in it. Not just grace, all grace. And not just all grace, but all grace abounding towards you. And who's it guaranteed by? The ability of God. God is able to make all grace abound toward you, the recipient the one who has done the giving, according to Paul's guidelines, that you, always having all sufficiency, always you'll have enough in all things, you may abound to every good vacation and retirement. No, no. <laughs> every good work. 
No matter how much you give, you'll have enough to do the work God puts in front of you. You'll still have all sufficiency in all things. I had some cross-references here, and I got just a minute or two. I'd just suggest you look at Proverbs 22, verse 9. God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able. I've got 2 Corinthians 25, 9, and Proverbs 10, 22 there. But look at how superlative verse 8 is. All grace abound, all sufficiency, all things abound to every. And then he closes up this lesson on giving with this, a prayer for them. Verse 10, now he that ministereth seed to the sower. God is the one that gives the seed to those that go out and plant it. Both minister bread for your food and multiply your seed sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. Verses 9 and 10 were a parenthesis quoting the Old Testament and then developing into a prayer. After the end of verse 10, it says, being enriched in everything to all bountifulness, which causes through us thanksgiving to God. What a nice prayer to close with. If our pastor was here this morning, he might notice at the end of verse 10, there's a winking smiley face, but I just wouldn't bring that up. I don't think they knew that. All right, folks, remember the lesson of 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That is Paul's succinct presentation of what it was Jesus did when the Father sent him to die on the cross. He had no sin of his own. He took our sin. And when we believe in him, he covers us up with the very perfect righteousness of God so that trying to be qualified for heaven isn't dependent on our trying, but because we are covered up with the very perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ and as to anyone who will believe in him. Father in heaven, thank you for your word and the time we were able to spend together in it this morning. We pray that you'll guide and guard the rest of this morning service and, and give healing to Jesse and Kyla and the baby as they have caught a virus. And we just pray they'll be better soon. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. It's exciting.